Hi everyone, thanks so much for downloading Dark Histories. The podcast has been growing really well recently and that's thanks to all you good people who share it around with your friends and families. Before we start, I just want to throw out a few ways that you can help to support the show throughout the growth and keep it sustainable. We have a Patreon, an Amazon booklist, a coffee and an Audible affiliate link. So if you're interested in supporting, hopefully you can find a way to do so that suits you. All of the links for those various things can be found on the website over at darkhistories.com and of course, just continuing to share it around with all your friends and families is a huge help. So thanks so much for all your help with that. Okay, let's get on with the show. In 1764, France was a tumultuous place. On the eve of revolution, the peasant farmers from the remote region of Gévaudan were suffering from decades of difficulties, brought about by war, poverty, poor agricultural conditions and plague. As the summer brought about favourable weather and life for the population of the barren and sparse region should have begun an upswing in fortune, a series of attacks marked the beginning of a reign of terror that would last almost three years, headed by a monster known simply as the Beast. Bodies were found half-eaten, the remains left on the ground spreading a fear throughout the region that would eclipse all of the previous problems and would escalate the situation as high as the court of the king. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories. I'm Ben. I hope you've all had a fantastic couple of weeks. It's good to be back. Today's episode is an interesting one in that I actually had no idea what it was until I stumbled across it in a newspaper that I was looking up for yesterday today. And when I posted it, a YouTube user uh, going by the name of, I have no idea actually, XJST Alex. Just Alex. So yeah, thanks. <laughs> I think I'll just call you Alex for now. Who actually said, you know, wow, I can't believe you stumbled across a newspaper article about the Beast of Givardin. There's even a movie made, Brotherhood of the Wolves, based upon one of the more far-fetched scenarios of what the beast was. And, you know, when I read that comment, I was like, oh, right, okay. I had no idea that it even was a thing. And then another YouTube user, Brian, uh, said you could do a full episode on the beast of Chevrodan. Um, So I thought, you know, well, I'll look into that because I enjoyed the story. So I looked into it and, um, yeah, it was really great. So that's what we're going to be doing today, uh, The Beast of Chevrodan. Um, I will say I, uh, I wrote this episode twice. Um, the first time I stuck to English sources. Only when it, I've sort of reached the end and I wasn't particularly happy about it. So I went back and I utilised my terrible school French and got hold of a document that basically had every single communication and official record ever to do with the beast that it totaled about 600 pages this document but obviously it was all in french so a kind of heads up um it's just that the some of the translations are a little bit wooden um and that's just purely my fault because my translations uh the the detail is correct but you know it perhaps loses some of the character the, of the original writing it, it sort of gets lost in the translation because my skip like my, my french is just not that good so yeah there's a kind of heads up there but i'm much happier with it the second time around having those kind of much better sources so yeah i, I think that was the kind of playoff for me so yeah before we get started i just want to say thanks to all the new patrons 
Briar, Tammy, Gaia, Psychic Student, Cheryl, Lily, Andrew and Maria, who all joined this month. So thank you very much um, for that. And thank you to all of this patrons. And also to Alison, who donated via coffee. So thank you, Alison. Uh, just now I spoke a little about um, yesterday, today. And I have had a few people ask if that's coming back. It definitely is coming back. It's taken a bit of a hitch after I was ill um, the other week. But it will be coming back. I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that at the end of the episode. Along with um, some other stuff about a second anniversary episode that's coming up. Which I hope can be a kind of cooperative episode so yeah stick around for that at the end for now let's get on with the story this is terror in chevaudan the beast france in 1764 was a country of severe economic fracture on one end of the scale the clergy and court nobility lived in parisian mansions full of clockworks telescopes globes holding extravagant soirees with guests dressed in the latest fashions Gastronomic excesses surrounded a dining table still life centrepiece and was eaten with fine silverware. Yet in the rural communities, the peasant classes toiled on farms for a daily wage that was barely enough to cover the outgoings. Families with young children would send them to work outdoors, often in dangerous climates. In the middle was an emergent cluster of differing social classes riding on the wave of a capitalist society that grew throughout the 18th century. However, The wealth gap was still extreme, and those at the top were not shy to enjoy all that they had, often at the expense of those that watched from below with a disdainful eye. The Seven Years' War had ended one year earlier, in 1763, after a strenuous and costly series of campaigns that ultimately ended in failure for the French nation. It was a war that had seen every major European power slug out a conflict that had been looming on the horizon for years before its outbreak across the face of the entire globe, from the Americas to Southeast Asia. By the conclusion of fighting, France alone had suffered over 200,000 casualties and had lost much of its colonial territorial claims in North America. Back at home, King Louis XV had reigned for close to 60 years and whilst he was nicknamed the Well-Beloved, he was far from popular. A series of unsuccessful military and geopolitical decisions had skewed the public well against him, and the heavy loss in the Seven Years' War only cemented this opinion for many. The expenses of the court and of the decades-long military campaigns had severely weakened France, and King Louis' rule in the second half of the century can be seen as a direct influence and major factor behind the brewing mistrust and anger towards the monarchy, which led to the French Revolution in 1789. Prior to the Revolution, France was divided into historical regions that differ from today. Chevaudan, now modern-day Lozère, lay 340 miles south of Paris, and whilst Paris was full of citizens enrolled in new, modern education systems where the ideas of the Enlightenment prevailed, in rural districts such as the Chevaudan, old thoughts still reigned supreme. The geographically isolated region was a land that certainly lent itself to old thought. Travel from Paris took almost 15 days and was not easy going. The landscape was that of classic superstition and folktales, sparsely populated, covered in thick patches of woodland, dark forest and barren rolling hills that were sharply torn by eruptions of granite mountains with peaks of up to 1,500 metres. It was a challenging and harsh environment to live in, with poor agricultural prospects that made it the least populated region in France 
with a mere 76,000 citizens at less than 15 people per square kilometre. If France was hit hard by the Seven Years' War, it was merely the tip of the iceberg for the Gévaudan region. In previous decades, the area had suffered from plague, foot and mouth disease, and finally topped by an infestation of parasites that had destroyed crops. The largest town in the region, Mende, had a population of just 12,000, and the bishop was akin to a king amongst the people. In the rural areas of France, the local clergy were the tip of the local hierarchy. The population was almost entirely Catholic, and their lives revolved heavily around the clock and calendar of the church. The abbot of each town and village personally knowing and recording every birth, death and baptism, as well as hearing confession, a process that could easily lead to a formal interrogation with everything reported up to the Bishop of Mend. Due to the harsh landscape, rearing sheep and cattle took precedent over crop farming and one was expected to contribute to the family's farm from a young age. Wolf infestations were a common problem. The animals were yet to be driven to extinction in the area and wolf attacks in France, though difficult to estimate with perfect accuracy, are thought to have ranged into the thousands. Official reports from early modern France recorded 1,857 deaths by wolf attack alone, but with so many holes in the official records and the growing trust throughout the period of bureaucracy, this number has been estimated as high as 9,000. As if the population didn't have enough with the struggles against the environment and having to routinely contend with sustained wolf attacks on their precious cattle, gangs of bandits were another common problem as highwaymen and criminals took both Chevrodan and the areas to the east as their home, a place they could ply their trade with relative safety from the hands of the law. In 1764, a new threat hit the Chevrodan region, when in early June, an attack on a young woman from Longonia, a small town lying in the Allier Valley of the northeastern border between Chevrodan and Ossetani, signalled the beginning of a series of attacks by an animal that became known simply as La Bête, or The Beast. The story of the beast begins with the young woman from Langoyne, who in early June was out tending to her grazing cattle when she was rushed upon by a large animal. Her life was spared only by the grace of the oxen that drew back into a huddle, surrounding her in the middle and driving the attacker away. She returned home intact, though her clothing was torn in the escape and she appeared in a state of some shock. She gave a description of the animal as a monstrous animal, that made her dogs run away in fright. Whilst her description rocked some, it was written off by many others. Most took her to be hysterical from the fright of the sudden attack, and they disregarded her account. Stories of these events were not uncommon, and though her statement seemed alarming, most were convinced that it was nothing but a wolf. At the very worst, the animal had been rabid. The wolves in the area were bold, but those that had grown rabid were bolder than most. Their behaviour was erratic and the animal's sickness was easily confused with an advanced degree of savagery and grim appearance. Interestingly, this attack was either a single attack that gave itself to two different stories or was in fact the second of two attacks which took place in the same village on two different young girls as there are differing stories of another attack on an eight-year-old girl that took place a few days prior. Either way, the story might have ended there if not for a further attack several weeks later. This time the attack was fatal and they were elevated in the minds of the locals, stamping its mark on the official records. 
The victim was Jean Boulet, a 14-year-old girl from the village of Hubac in Saint-Étienne-de-la-Guerre, and though it was the first recorded attack, the actual record is only a single entry into the parish record, which reads, On 1st July, 1764, Jean Boulet was buried without the final sacraments, having been killed by the beast. Those present, Joseph Vigier and Jean Rebou. Within a week, a second attack followed, when at around 5pm, three lumberjacks outside the village of Masmajan d'Alia were surprised to see a flock of sheep tearing down a hilltop opposite from the site they were working. Curious, the men walked over the hill in the direction the sheep had come from and they discovered the body of a 15-year-old girl. The scene was grisly and the statements later given by the men spoke of a large fang marks all over her body that were clearly visible. The records of her death in the local parish, however, noted her body as simply disappeared and it was only through oral history that the story survived until much later when her death was officially chalked up to a savage animal attack. By now, the locals were getting edgy, though a relative quiet period helped to quell their fears of many. The next attack would not occur for over two weeks until the silence was broken by a further fatal attack on the 25th of August when a 15-year-old boy was killed, followed one week later by a second 15-year-old boy who was attacked and killed on the 1st of September. Both were registered only by their age and gender and were nameless in the death records of their respective parishes. September proved to be a prolific month for the animal, which by now was being spoken of as causing havoc in the region. On the 6th of September, a 36-year-old woman named Marianne was killed at 7pm by the entrance to her village of Leistret, just 40 kilometres north of Mend. She was buried on the 7th and the parish record for her death wrote of her as strangulated and devoured. The close vicinity of the attack to Mend facilitated the spread of the news of the attacks and soon it became the most talked about subject in the area, forcing local authorities to take action. Etienne Lafont, a regional government delegate, met with Monsieur de Lacoste, a local gamekeeper, and arranged for a hunt of the animal to take part as soon as possible. At the same time, he offered a reward of 200 livres, about six months' pay on a peasant's wage, for any person who could bring the dead body to mend. Further, in what could be seen as an extreme change in policy, Lafont suggested that all peasants should be allowed to carry firearms in order to down what he was calling a monster. In normal times, the policy surrounding firearms was quite simple. None were permitted to carry them unless they were nobility. Peasants were unable to own them no matter their situation. This U-turn in policy is a clear example of the terror that the attacks had brought down upon the area and the issues it was causing the local government. Lafont coordinated with the local authorities of the various regions and towns throughout Chevrodin to organise permanent hunts consisting of a dozen or so local peasants of each parish, paid 20 sous a day, less than the daily rate of a peasant farmer, to go out and attempt to stalk and kill the beast. These men, though they knew the land well, were not experienced hunters, and many had little to no experience of using a firearm. For many, it was simply not a high enough level of pay to stray far from their homes, and several others refused to go out at all without being led by an experienced hunter. Lafont saw that more would be needed, and began communicating with authorities to enlist the drafting in of professional soldiers. By the end of September, there had been a further three attacks officially recorded, 
Though a priest based in Luke wrote of how he had been told stories of continuous daily attacks throughout September. The attack on the 16th was upon a young boy named Claude Maureen and was recorded by the priest as an unnatural death, strangled by a ferocious beast without receiving any of the sacraments and having not yet made his first communion, aged about 12 years old and was buried in the cemetery of our church and were present Etienne Sapé and Jean Mounier from St. Flower. On the 21st of September, a local shepherd killed a wolf and presented it to the parish, receiving 18 livres for his troubles, though the parish were unsure if the body was of the animal that had been causing the carnage across the region. We, the undersigned parish priest of Saint-Pierre-de-Luc, certify that the wolf whose head is presented was killed yesterday at about 5pm in the parish. I am assured that the dogs helped by the shepherds in the village of Pradel in the parish stifled the animal. Although there were many marks that identify it as the beast that has killed many, we cannot know for certain if it is the one. We will know soon if we see an end to the attacks. It was clearly shown, however, that the wolf killed by the shepherds was just an ordinary wolf, as an attack on the 28th of September on a 12-year-old girl named Magdalene Morass, just 50 paces from our front door, was attacked so savagely that her body was described as unidentifiable, and the burial that took place the following day saw only the girl's arm placed in the ground. The rest of her body had been devoured and carried away by the animal that in all records and local stories was now being called simply the beast. A further five official reports of attacks came in October, though three were non-fatal. The first, which was an attack on a 15-year-old boy, tore the boy's scalp clean off and left deep gashes on his chest. Though it was assumed in the records that he would survive, it was stated that he would be left an idiot for a sustained period. The second was a 12-year-old boy who managed to escape with just deep cuts to his cheek. He had cowered behind his oxen, who had chased the beast off, cutting the attack short. And the third was a 10-year-old girl who had the good luck to have been shadowed by a group of men hunting the beast, who spotted it crawling on its stomach ready to attack. They chased it into the woods, and though it circled back and still attempted to take the girl, the men were able to drag her away in time to rescue her. One of the most triumphant stories from survivors of attacks of the beast came on the 12th of October, when the animal sprung out onto a group of three young children, a young girl aged 10 years old, and her two brothers aged 13 and just six. All three had been out tending to their grazing cattle, and the two brothers had carried sticks crudely tied with knives at the end, creating a makeshift spear. They had used these spears to stab at the animal which fled as soon as they began stabbing it at its hind legs, leaving the trio with nothing but a scratch on the arm of the girl. As the stories of the beast travelled, people became more and more wary to leave their houses without escorts, and the economy, which so relied on outdoor work, took a hard hit as prices rose. This only exacerbated an already rocketing rise in grain that had hit the area in the months prior due to poor harvests that would lead to a violent spring and summer of riots in 1765. One small ray of sunshine for the authorities saw that the regular hunts, now underway by a large group of the local peasants in many organised beats, had at least the effect of moving the beasts northwards as it moved further away from Mend and out of the territory of Logon, though it still continued its attacks as it moved. A tale recorded many years later by Abbot Pierre Pourcher, who heavily documented the case in 1889, 
consolidating all the official records along with many of the stories that still survived in oral tradition, spoke of an event that took place that October. Jean-Pierre, the father of my grandfather, born at the Barac de la Croix de Trey, had been working, bundling sheaves of hay all day in the barn just beyond the village. At the end of the day, after the workers returned home for supper, Jean-Pierre arranged his straw at the end of the barn. It was not yet night and the snow was covering all the ground. As he approached the little window, he saw something following the path to the water fountain. A sort of fright seized him and he dove to the ground quickly. Taking his rifle, he shuffled to the window of the stable that faced opposite the fountain. As he looked out the window, he spotted a beast that he does not know. It's the beast, it's the beast, he called. Although he was a very strong and steadfast man, fear had seized him to the point that he could scarcely hold his rifle. He made the sign of the cross across his chest and he shot at the animal. The beast fell, only to get up, shake and continue to move. She looked furiously around her. My grandfather's father fired a second shot and once again she fell shrieking wildly. Once again she got up, shaking herself and left making a noise like that of a person screaming as they walk away from an argument. He told my grandfather the following, If we do not take the means of obtaining from God and the Blessed Virgin our deliverance, it will devour us all and all that we will be will be continually useless. This account marks an interesting point in the description of the beast, in that it was the first time that firearms were mentioned as useless in a fight against it. This would come to be a feature of the animal as it morphed and changed in local gossip. Another record from October of the attacks spoke of how the beast decapitated its foe. Though it was only one entry, this would come to be another feature of the attacks in the minds of the population. In total, the beast would decapitate 16 of its victims, a little over 10%. But even so, this manner of killing quickly became canon in the story of the beast. By mid-October, Lafont's pleas to the authorities paid off, and local enforcements were ordered to assist the hunt, and for the first captain de Hamel of the Dragoon Corps to ready his men to hunt the beast on the word of Lafont's sightings. A line of communication between Lafont and de Hamel was initiated, and any sighting that Lafont was to become privy to was to be passed to de Hummel to allow him to dispatch troops and chase the beast. On November the 5th, de Hamel arrived in Saint-Chalais with 56 light troops, 17 of which were on horseback. The presence of the troops, which should have had a calming influence on the locals, led instead to a greater tensions in the area, as the distrust of authority had by now reached a record low. As the story grew, and with the intervention of de Hamel's Dragoon Corps, it became inevitable that the newspapers would get a hold of the story and give it a wider national airing. On the 16th of November, a brief story of the beast was printed alongside an illustration based on eyewitness testimony in the paper The Courier d'Avignon. Figure of the fierce and extraordinary beast which devours girls in the province of Chevaudan, which escapes with so much speed that in a very short time it is seen two or three leagues distant and then it cannot be caught or killed. A wild beast has appeared for these past two months past in this province, in the neighbourhood of Lagoyne and the forest of Mossoir, which occasions a great consternation. It has already devoured 20 persons, chiefly children, and particularly young girls, and scarce a day passes without some accident. The terror it occasions prevents the woodcutters from going to work in the forests, 
so that wood is become very scarce and dear. Tis only within this week past that anybody could get a good view of this formidable animal. He is much higher than a wolf, low before, and his feet are armed with talons. His hair is reddish, his head large, long made, and the muzzle of it shaped like that of a greyhound. His ears are small and straight, his breast is wide and of grey colour, his back is streaked with black, and his mouth, which is large, is provided with a set of teeth so sharp that they have taken off several heads as clean as a razor could have done. He is of amazing swiftness, but when he aims his prey, he crouches so close to the ground that he hardly appears to be bigger than a large fox, and at the distance of two to four metres, he rises upon his hind legs and springs upon his prey, which he always seizes by the neck or throat. He is afraid of oxen which he runs away from. The consternation is universal throughout the district, and public prayers are offered up upon this occasion. The Marquis has sent out 400 peasants to hunt this ferocious beast, but they have so far been unsuccessful. The sketch included of the animal is crude and shows an animal which could be viewed as either a quadruped or biped, as its hind legs are a fair bit taller than its front legs, which it appears to be holding out in front of it. Its ears are drawn like horns, and it boasts a jaw the length of its head, stuffed with large, sharp teeth. The same piece appeared translated to English in the British press on November the 30th, though it lacked the sketch of the animal. This early description of the beast tallies with many later descriptions, though testimonies that included descriptions were often vague and had subtle differences that built a shifting, hazy watercolour of how the animal actually looked. The differences were often attributed to shock, colouring the witness's memory of what they had seen. The dragoons who pursued it say it is of the size of a very large dog, extremely hairy, of a brown colour with the belly of lightish yellow. The head is very large, and two long teeth stand out from its mouth. The ears are short and stand up, and the tail bushy, which it erects in running. Its legs are very long, and its talons large. It is said that this description is not dictated by fear, and the officers of the regiment of Clermont maintain that the two dragoons are the bravest men in the whole corps. However, the description they have given of this animal gives us no assistance in discovering its species. In some respects, it resembles a bear, in others a boar, and in others, neither. Often the reports that contain witness testimony of the beast followed a shifting pattern, leading the overall description to evolve over time until, at least in the oral traditions, it had several unique powers, some that could be seen as supernatural, and many that stem from traditional folklore, from razor-sharp retractable claws, cloven feet, horns, glowing eyes with the ability to freeze men in their place and an unnatural strength and constitution. Many descriptions compared the beast with wolves, panthers, lions, hyenas, lynx, bears, boars, and numerous other species, as well as hybrids of all of the above. Interest in hybrids was rampant at the time, as the Enlightenment taught people about genetics, and ideas ran wild in the imagination. Whilst menageries were common, containing exotic animals from around the world, and with the bad feeling towards the owners of such a menagerie, it became easy to point fingers towards the clueless upper classes. The beast now saw itself as hot copy for the courier d'Avignon, who continued to print stories and descriptions of the beast. Monsieur de Hamel, captain of the dragoons of the volunteers of Clermont, 
At the head of the four companies of this regiment and of several groups of peasants drawn from the surrounding villages who have been armed, have made several attempts to hunt and kill this pernicious animal. However, their only success has been to drive it from the region of Mend. It is now, or at least it was, at the time of writing, in the forest of saint chalier and Malzieu, where it was since devoured eight people. Of all the corpses that have been found, the beast has eaten only the liver, the heart, the intestines, and part of the head, leaving behind the remainder of the body. The Viveray and Gevudan trustees have each issued a 400 livre reward to anyone who kills the animal. Descriptions of the figure and species of the beast vary considerably. One survivor from Lagoyne, who has suffered a great illness leading from the fright he felt from laying eyes on the animal, depicted it as long, low, with a tawny colour, and with a black stripe running down its back. The beast's tail is long, and the claws are very big. A priest, who chased him at the head of his parishioners, and who says he has seen him three times, represented him as big as a year-old calf, of the same colour and muzzle like that of a pig. Various peasants have described it in the same way, with the only difference that they speak of its head resembling that of a cat, which certainly does not have anything in common with that of a pig. Ultimately, it does not matter which species the beast is. The only importance is that if it is evil, the important thing is that we kill it. Once dead, he will be unable to flee, and fear will no longer prevent one from approaching it, allowing for a proper inspection. On the illustration that could be made, it will be easy, especially for those who have frequented the menageries, to discern his species. In January, there was a brief respite in the press when a report was made that the beast had been attacked and killed. However, on Saturday the 26th of January, the beast's survival was reported in English newspapers. To our great regret, we have reason to contradict the report which was propagated concerning the death of the wild beast, which has made such carnage in these cantons. It is but too much alive, of which we have very lately a proof as convincing as it is melancholy. A dragoon of the volunteers of Prince Clermont and one of the company which had been detached in pursuit of it came here on the 22nd in order to inform us that a young girl of 12 years of age has been devoured by it on the evening before in the parish of Ben de Papa in the diocese. On the information, a company of dragoons repaired immediately to the place in hopes of seeing the ferocious animal and of killing it, grounding their expectations on a saying that he never failed to return to the place where he had struck the blow within 24 hours after, in order to lick the blood of those that he had devoured. But the animal appeared not, whether it was that his appetite for human blood is not so periodical as we thought, or that he repressed it on noticing from afar the martial troop which lay in wait for him. The agility of this mischievous beast is equal to his ferocity. He performs about eight leagues an hour, as has been found out by tracing the courses he has made in a day at different places, as he has killed nobody since the 25th of last month, when he devoured a young woman in the parish of Ormont, also in this diocese. We thought he had been driven from the Gevudin and began to be easy, but this fresh stroke has renewed our consternation and even augmented it, inasmuch as after so many trials, we dare not hope to get rid of this dreadful and crafty beast, which knows as well how to escape his pursuers as to devour those who fall in his way. The winter in Gévaudan had been tough. Snowfall had made the hunts, which were already challenging due to the environment, doubly so, as the cold winds of the Atlantic blew up through the valleys and between the peaks, freezing the swamplands as it whipped its way east. 
By the new year, the beast had attacked 27 people, killing 18. As the winter continued, the number would rise dramatically. 1765 was the beast's most prolific year, and by the time of spring, as the snow and ice thawed, official reports numbered the fatalities at 56. In December, the situation between the locals and the lack of success in the hunts saw de Hamel dismissed from the job, though in January, Lafont wrote to the French court and managed to convince the authorities to reinstate his presence in the hunts. The stories had also evolved. As news of the beast travelled and continued, sightings became more and more extreme. By 1765, it was common to hear testimony that the beast walked on its hind legs, could cast spells, and very possibly had befriended local enchantresses. The many child victims were attributed to old folklore beliefs in werewolves who had preyed on the fat of young Christians. Whilst many of these stories would have been dismissed in Paris and in the northern cities, in the rural region of Chevardin, they would have still held a certain level of sway within the majority peasant population. In one story, reported in the Caledonian Mercury, the beast attacked a full party of adults riding in a carriage drawn by two horses. The beasts first attacked the horses jumping up from the roadside before turning on the driver who attempted to shoot the beast but misfired. Apparently, upon seeing an approaching corps of soldiers armed with firearms, the beast then jumped into the carriage and out the other side by jumping clean through the glass window. The stench that was left behind was so bad that the carriage was burnt and ordered to be buried outside of the city walls. How much truth to this story there is will never be known, but it's perhaps a testament to the level of ability the press were by now elevating the beast to possess. Not only was it so bold as to attack horses and a full group of adults in a carriage, but it seemed to be aware of the meaning of approaching soldiers. The stench that was left behind was a side of the beast which allowed the press to hint at supernatural origins without saying as much outright. The authorities were by now incredibly keen on catching the beast and putting an end to the stories which King Louis XV was now painfully aware were reaching international press. An English newspaper wrote a satirical report on the beast, which according to the paper had defeated an entire army of 125,000 men, devouring 25,000 whole, all of which did nothing but cower in fear before it. This was not an isolated report either, and King Louis was aware that all of the neighbouring country's press were printing reports ridiculing his inability to gain control of the situation. Concern for the image of France, and perhaps more so of his own reputation, he ordered the peasants to join the hunts alongside de Hummel, and any who disobeyed would be punished by the court. At the same time, the peasants were reminded that they were not allowed to kill any other animal other than wolves and the beast. Hunting game was a perk that existed only for the nobility, and even in the tough times of the beast's reign, that saw the peasants legally armed with firearms, this was one rule that would not be bent. On the flip side, any who captured or killed the beast were to be given a reward of 6,000 livres, a vast sum at the time, almost a lifetime's wage for a peasant farmer. He also accepted the help of a renowned wolf hunter named Jean-Charles Marc-Antoine from Essel de Naval and his son Jean-Francois from Normandy. De Naval had reported to the king that in his life he had killed over 1,200 wolves and he assured the king that he would travel to Chevaldin and slay the beast in short time. He was poorly mistaken. After a grueling battle with de Hamel, who he saw as competition, 
Diana Val succeeded in having him removed from the picture and ordered him to leave the region. This was not Diana Val's greatest idea, as the beast evaded his capture for a further three months, in which time he stalked it slowly with his six bloodhounds, explaining to the locals that careful hunting of the animal would take time. It didn't take long for Dianaval's approach to the situation to lead to his dismissal after the king, tired of hearing of no results, employed his own personal gun bearer, Francois Antoine, to head the hunt's campaign and to turf out Dianaval. Employment of Francois Antoine was a further costly operation and it saw the outlier raise from 2,530 livres to an eye-water in 16,075. Poisoning campaigns were ran whereby the carcasses of 310 dogs poisoned were left as bait for the beast in five distinct bursts over a period of 82 days. All of these campaigns, alongside the by now continual hunts, ended in failure. Still, the attacks continued, and as the spring turned to summer, marking an entire year of attacks, the official records totaled 71 fatalities. Descriptions of the attacks in the newspapers grew more gruesome and wild, reporting the beast's propensity to seize its unfortunate victims by the nape of the neck, choke the life out of them and drink their blood before separating the head from the trunk of the body. The cost of the hunts, led by Antoine, were not lost on the peasants and their fury grew as the campaigns continued to grow in size and scope whilst the failures repeatedly came to light in the form of dozens of further attacks, the half-eaten carcasses of the victims shining a harsh light on the failures of the king's best man. The locals, far more accustomed to the harsh landscape of Shevardan, mocked him openly for struggling to hunt effectively. Eventually, after several months and with the looming winter of 1765 rolling over the horizon, Antoine departed an own area of attacks with all of his men, horses and hunting dogs for an area which had not commonly been reported as an area affected by the beast, though it was well known for its wolf infestation. Not long after, Antoine reportedly discovered the beast and shot it through the eye. The wolf was far larger than any other wolf that they had tracked in the region, and as it rose from the ground, lunging forward in a desperate frenzy, a second shot brought it down to the ground for a second time, killing it outright. The reign of the beast was officially over. Or was it? The killing of the animal by Antoine on the 21st of September of 1765 was lauded by the French court. Antoine was awarded the Grand Croix of the Order of Saint Louis for his efforts and paid off handsomely, whilst the stuffed animal was paraded within Paris to pay in public who came to see the Beast of Gévaudin. The reports of the beast's death quickly found its way to the national, and more importantly, international press. The Monsieur Antoine de Botin, who accompanied the Monsieur Antoine, his father, to the Gévaudan, is arrived here post with the body of the wild beast that made such ravages in that country, and has had the honour to present it to the king last Tuesday. Several of the inhabitants of the neighbouring towns who had been attacked by the beasts went to view it before it was brought away and all declared it to be the same animal which had once caused great terror amongst them. He is 32 inches high and 5 feet 7 inches and a half long, and it weighs 130 pounds. The most experienced huntsmen are of opinion that it was a real wolf and has nothing extraordinary either in its size or form. 
It was first shot in the eye by the Monsieur Antoine at a distance of 50 yards and fell, but soon recovered itself and was making up to Monsieur Antoine with great fury when it was shot dead by the Duke of Orleans' gamekeeper named Reinhardt. According to later advices from Paris, they have an account from the Gévaudan that Monsieur d'Antoine had killed there a second wolf of an extraordinary size and that the intendant of Auvergne are getting it embalmed and sent to the king. Of course, this description of the dead, perfectly normal-sounding wolf soon morphed into something else entirely. The surgeons who dissected the wild beast of the Gévaudan, killed by Monsieur Antoine on the 20th instance, say that it is more of a hyena than a wolf. As soon as it was killed, it sent forth a very disagreeable stench. In his body, several bones of sheep were found. This animal hath forty teeth, and wolves have but twenty-six. The muscles of his neck are very strong. His sides are so formed that he could bend his head to his tail. His eyes sparkled so with fire that it was hardly possible to bear his look. His tail is very large, broad, thick and bristled with black hair. The feet are armed with claws extremely strong and singular. Whilst Antoine's beast seemed to appease the international press and the peasant folk on wider scale, the locals of the Gévaudan were deeply sceptical of the success of Antoine. In the first, the descriptions of the beasts were not tallying with the locals' own experiences, but even more damning in that despite the quiet press, the attacks hadn't stopped at all. Throughout the winter of 1765, new attacks continued in Gévaudan and all appeared to continue the same patterns as the attacks of the previous 18 months. The bodies of young children were continued to be found, with limbs torn off, heads decapitated and many half-eaten. Throughout the entire year of 1766, there were a further 20 fatalities attributed to the beast officially, with a further 18 attacks which were survived. The people of Gévaudan now had a new problem, as talk of the beast was to go against the king himself, or insinuate that he had been cheated by his own personal hunter. Neither was an attractive proposition to any in a position to request help for the region, and as such, whilst the attacks continued, pleas to authorities fell on deaf ears. As the snow once again fell, and then thawed, and the summer of 1767 heralded in the second year of the reign of the beast, a local Gévaudan lord organised a hunt with a local hunter named Jean Chastel. Chastel stalked the beast with bullets loaded into his firearm that had been blessed by the local clergy and were, as legend tells it, made of silver. In a story which seems to veer into the world of folklore, Chastel awaited the beast at Sorge, 71 kilometres north of Mend, and when he spotted it approaching, he calmly said his prayers, placed a prayer book into his pocket, took off his glasses, aimed his gun and shot. The beast does not move. It waits. I shoulder my weapon, shoot. The beast stands still. At the sound of the shot, the dogs run up, knock it down and rip it up. It is dead. Chastel loaded the beast's body onto a horse and cart and took it immediately to be examined. The locals who saw the dead body described it as such. It was an animal the size of a calf or a donkey. It had reddish fur with, on its back, a black bar from its shoulders to its tail. The head enormous and similar to that of a pig. The mouth always open, the eyes sparkling. The ears are short and straight like horns. The breast white and very big. 
the hind legs very big and very long, the front legs shorter and covered with long fur, six claws on each paw. Some said that the back legs had hooves like that of a horse. Inside its stomach, the shoulder of a young girl was found, which, as far as Chastel and many locals were concerned, confirmed that this was indeed the body of the beast of Gévaudin. In total, the animal had officially sprung 240 attacks throughout the region, killing 112, leaving 53 wounded, whilst a further 75 had escaped with little or no wounds. Though the true number, including attacks which were not reported or discovered, is thought to be considerably higher. The body was paraded around the region before being sent to Versailles. This might have done wonders for local morale, but in the high heat of August, a 15-day journey did nothing for the state of the animal's body. By the time it arrived, it was in such a state of putrefaction, it was buried immediately before any official could examine it, and further, before any burial could be officially recorded, leading to the body being completely lost to time. The king made short work of denying Chastel any reward, and the hunter returned to the Gévaudan with nothing to show for his trip, except the sting of mockery that he had received by the court. The authorities back in Gévaudan were slightly more grateful for his endeavours, and he was rewarded a nominal reward. Whilst the peasants were grateful still, Chastel found himself a local folk hero, wrapping up a story which started in reality and ends in a bizarre twist towards the realm of the folktale perhaps a fitting ending point for an ordeal that took place in a land as isolated and challenging as the Gévaudan. Theories on what the beast of the Gévaudan actually was run rampant, from the rational, such as a standard pack of wolves, to the thoroughly out there, the supernatural descriptions taken as precise accounts, and there is everything in between. Was it a normal wolf of an extreme size, or as contemporary theories postulated, some kind of hybrid? Are we to entertain the folk tales to introduce several concepts to the legends of the werewolf? In particular, Chastel's silver bullets became a repeated part of werewolf lore. But does his story hold any truth at all? Or was the king right to laugh him out of the court? If that is the case, why did the attacks stop after his reported killing of the beast? Or did they stop at all? Were the locals simply more accommodating to a conclusion that lauded one of their own rather than a noble buffoon who had stomped through their forests and farmlands, inept and costly, and from a class that was much unpopular. On the flip side of this theory, there are some that believe Chastel himself may have had a role in the killings. He had owned many exotic animals, apparently bred in his home as hunting animals, and some point to the calm way in which the beast allowed itself to be shot by a man who said prayers and placed his possessions into his pockets before firing as a highly suspicious story. Furthermore, Antoine had had Chastel imprisoned for a short stint during his own hunts, and at that time, the attack stopped. This conspiracy bubbles along still today. One last theory is that the beast was not an animal at all, rather that many of the attacks could be attributed to a serial killer attacking, raping and mutilating women and children before killing them. One important point of the story is that in all the reports, no singular eyewitness ever called the beast a wolf. In a region so accustomed to wolf attacks, one might think it would have been simple to end a great deal of the worries and speculation to simply call the animal a wolf if that's what it was. One explanation given for this is that the fright of an attack would have coloured the testimony and led to inaccurate descriptions, but the opposing view of this leads to obvious connotations, that the animal was simply not a wolf. 
If not a wolf, though, we are caught in a circular chain of reasoning that ends back at the original question. What then was it that was attacking so many people in the Shevardan region? Whatever the truth may be, it is without doubt lost into a web of a story that despite its extensive documentation, including hundreds of pages of official communications and records, still manages to find itself concluding in a tale that would be entirely at home in a book of folklore. The lines between fact and fiction blurring as the years march on, yellowing the pages and twisting the oral traditions into something that lives on as a tale unto itself. So the Beast of Gévaudan, ladies and gentlemen. Pretty interesting story. I really enjoyed it. I think there's such a huge scope here for speculation um, that we're just going to have to dig into it. And we're going to do so after these short adverts. As mentioned at the start of the show, Dark Histories is an official affiliate with Audible, which is really great. I'm actually a member of Audible myself, so I'm really glad to bring in an advertiser that, you know, I actually do rate. For those that are not aware, Audible is an audiobook subscription service whereby you pay a monthly sub and you get a credit with each month to purchase an audiobook of your choice. When you cancel your subscription, you get to keep all your previously purchased books which you can access across devices from Mac, Windows, Android and iOS and they all stay synced up with one another. If this all sounds like something you might be interested in, hop over to audible.com forward slash dark histories and you can find a special offer. Sign up for a free month including your first credit to purchase an audiobook of your choice. If at the end of the month you decide that it's not for you, you can cancel, not pay a penny, and you get to keep the audiobook from your trial, so it's literally a win-win. Thanks very much for suffering through my spiel, and once again, if it does appeal, head over to audible.com forward slash darkhistories, or you can find the link on the support page of darkhistories.com. Cheers. Ads are a pain in the butt, right? Of course, you can hit that 30 second skip button, and that's all cool, but a much cooler way of skipping the ads is to sign up to the Dark Histories Patreon. You get a bunch of different benefits for doing so, including ad-free shows, access to early release episodes, the full back catalogue of bonus episodes, including the live stream archive and all the other bonus content. You get access to all my research notes for each episode, and you get the added bonus that you're actually a part of the show helping to keep it independent and sustainable from as little as $1 a month. So if you think that might be something you might be interested in doing, hop over to darkhistories.com and you'll find the support page with all the details to get involved. Thanks very much for not skipping this and giving my hard sell a listen. Let's get back to the show. Welcome back. So... The Beast of Shevardan is a fascinating story. I think of all of the kind of cryptozoological stories that I've looked into um, recently, because I'd like I, I've been wanting to do something slightly sort of along this vein for a while. I think this is the one that's got sort of the most interesting scope for theories, in that it really extends from cryptozoological monsters to folklore, all the way to humans. Um, you know, in that it could have been a murderer. Um, it's it's absolutely fascinating to get it out of the way first. The most obvious answer is that it was a pack of wolves um, roaming the area. That would be what I would personally have attributed it to. And I think possibly hysteria and 
overexcitement probably led to it evolving into a a kind of legend. And and I think this is evidenced quite clearly, actually, by if if you track its its attacks, it starts off relatively killing in, in, in one small area. But by the end of the attacks, it's traveling like huge distances every day. If you map it like that, you can sort of see that as the story grew, so too did its kind of powers of maneuverability. (laughs) And it could travel a lot further all of a sudden as the story kind of gained momentum. And as the, the, this picture of this almost supernatural beast grew in people's minds, Suddenly it was all over the shop and that was okay. You know, it was, it was kind of, it was almost this kind of like self-fulfilling prophecy or a circular kind of story that was just propelling itself upwards and upwards because as its kind of stature grew, so too did its kind of abilities. And as its abilities grew, so too did its stature. And, And all the time it was kind of justifying the fact that, oh, it's traveled like a huge distance in one day. Instead of just people saying, oh, well, it was two walls. So, you know, that for me, that's the obvious and, and kind of rational um, answer. But although that's rational and, and, of course, probably most people's sensible answer, it doesn't answer all the questions. And one of the sort of most poignant things that I thought was when I read that it had never been called a wolf in any of the testimonies. And suddenly that kind of, that, 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 that did sort of bring... A kind of shock or, or, or surprise, you know, in that, hang on a minute, this is an area where people damn well knew what a wolf looked like. And yet, you know, I'd been reading these testimonies and I was aware that they'd never called it a wolf, you know, because in French, wolf is uh, loop. Uh, and and they, they'd not, I'd not read loop in anything but a few newspaper reports, the, a few of the earlier newspaper reports before they started calling it La Bête. They called it uh, De Loop. Uh, so, you know, they, they were calling it Le, Le, Le Loop de Gévaudan and things like that, like the wolf. So, But none of the actual testimonies were calling it um, a, a wolf. They were all calling it um, a ferocious beast or just an animal or just a beast. Um, and eventually they all started calling it the beast. But yeah, it was interesting that actually, yeah, no, no, no testimonies had actually called it a wolf. And like I say, this is in an area where people damn well knew what a wolf looked like. And they could have ended it, a lot of sort of speculation and, and fuss, just by calling it a wolf, but none did. And, I, and I, I found that interesting. I found it an interesting point that people were not ready to just call it a wolf and, and were far more interested in the concept of it being something different. And of course, that grew as time went on and it, it got a little bit sort of out there with kind of having the ability to walk on its hind legs and cloven hooves and things like that and and horns and such one of the descriptions you know interestingly being that it looked like a pig you know it had the face of a pig that, that was quite an interesting one but but originally the descriptions were not so out there and wild you know originally the descriptions were of some kind of animal but just not a wolf so if we take that to be the, the reality then that does work sort of push out the idea that it was a wolf pack because why would a hybrid or uh, an animal that just simply wasn't a wolf run with a wolf pack it it probably wouldn't have been welcome Um, so you know that does kind of rule out the idea of a wolf pack suppose we could question that it could have been 
a beast and a wolf pack, but the beast wasn't quite as bad as has been made out. And the wolf pack were kind of helping it along, if you like. So it could have been um, one of the, like the idea is a hyena, for example, it could have been a hyena that was just a normal hyena, but with the assistance of a wolf pack that was also killing in the area, it, it could have been kind of elevated to make the hyena seem more sort of extreme than it actually was or, or something like that. You know, there's all these ideas that are quite rational and, and quite normal. Um, and at least when we look at the natural world, they're not, you know, supernatural beings. I like the idea that the hybrids, I thought that was interesting, except from I, I don't really agree. I think that was quite, that's, a, that's kind of antiquated theory and a, and a kind of antiquated idea, really. But I loved it as far as the story goes, that back in the day, people saw the concept of hybrids and, and their kind of imaginations ran, ran wild because the theory of genetics behind hybrids had not advanced enough to know that you can't just breed like a pig and a wolf and come up with a pig wolf. <laughs> but I, I love the idea that people thought you could, you know, like you could just breed a pig wolf or a dog monkey or whatever <laughs> Like I love, I love that. I thought that was brilliant. Um, it, you know, just as far as the story goes, I don't entertain it as a theory, but but just as far as the story goes, I thought it was brilliant. And on that point, I thought it was funny how people thought perhaps Chastel has. So, so the theory behind Chastel is quite convoluted, um, and it's that there is a theory that goes that he was a hunter and that uh, he had bred all these kind of crazy hybrids to essentially assist him in hunting because he had sort of hunting dogs and they are well and good. But when we look at this idea of like the kind of enlightenment, early enlightenment and the idea of hybrids, that he could essentially take this, you know, half of his hunting dog and breed it with a panther or, or something and, and make like a hunting panther and suddenly have like the ultimate hunting pet. And so people assume that this is what he'd done. And, or they didn't assume, so sorry, one of the theories are that this is what he had done, is that he had bred some kind of monstrosity in secret and it had escaped or it would go out at night and just murder people. And he knew it, but he kind of um, kept it quiet because it was like the ultimate hunting machine or something, I'm not sure. Like I say, it gets quite convoluted. The supposed evidence that kind of backs this up was that when Antoine had uh, arrived and was hunting the beast, Chastel was quite um, uh, open about how useless and costly he was, basically. And he was put in jail for kind of uh, going against the king. And during that time, there was about three months when nothing actually happened. And so some people attribute that to the fact that because he was in jail, he wasn't able to let out his kind of ferocious beast or, or order it to kill whatever he was supposedly doing. I mean, you can see the, 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 the initial fault in this theory, which perhaps they hadn't thought about was that in three months if he wasn't letting it out to kill anyone and he wasn't at home to feed it how is it not dead but you know this is the say so this is the theory was that that's that's why in those sort of three months when he was in prison no attacks happened was because he was kind of commanding the beast and that that's why 
when he finally did shoot it, he kind of did it for the money and fame, apparently, and that the beast didn't run because he knew Chastel, and Chastel was kind of had just ordered it to sit there and, and, and wait to be shot, basically. So that's kind of another theory, but like I say, it does fall apart under scrutiny pretty quickly. It becomes a pretty kind of, I suppose, tinfoil hat conspiracy to a degree. So I don't really believe in that one. Well, well, one thing that I do believe in, it does sort of touch on the realm of conspiracy, is that the king was intentionally trying to hush the story up in the press. And I, I've heard reports that he did actually attempt to stifle the press. So even once uh, Antoine had killed what was apparently the beast and they'd accepted that and said, yes, the beast is dead, which it clearly wasn't, by the way. So I, I think he clearly just killed a wolf and took it home and went, there's a wolf. And they went, yeah, success. So I don't think, you know, if there was a beast, whatever it was, he just killed a wolf and just took it home and said, I've killed the thing. I heard that the king actually gagged the newspapers basically and that's why there's no reports in 1766 or 1767 of any more killings because he just gagged them outright and I, I do believe that that's probably true I think he I think he wanted to be seen to have a handle on the on the situation and I think you know like it was said in the story that anyone then that went against it and said hey the beast is still alive was essentially either going against the king or saying that he'd been hoodwinked by his own hunter. Personally, I don't think he was hoodwinked. I think him and the hunter were in on it both. I think the king wanted a result. And so the hunter provided him with a result. And whilst it wasn't the result that anyone in the Jevudan believed, it was a result that they could at least sort of push in front of the media I think it was, you know, the idea was basically, hey, man, if you can't kill this supposed beast, just kill a wolf that's slightly large and we'll call it the beast and we'll say that that's done. So, yeah, I do think that embellishments at least were made. And I do think that, um, you know, the cost of everything was ramping up. People were not particularly happy with anything that was happening, including, you know, they couldn't really be appeased in a way because they weren't happy with being killed all the time by this kind of supposed beast, but they also weren't happy when the soldiers came because they didn't really like the authority. So, you know, they were incredibly difficult to please. The king wasn't particularly popular and he obviously was quite sensitive because he was getting upset about international media, the way it was portraying the situation. So I definitely think it was hushed up and stifled by, you know, the authorities and the king and the court. So that, that was interesting, just as an aside. Um, I definitely think that happened. But yeah, back to actually what the beast was then. I mean, we're, we're kind of left with the idea that it was some sort of werewolf, which, again, I don't really agree um, because I don't really believe in werewolves. But I find it interesting the way that it, it obviously always with folklore, it's difficult to understand where things or originated in many cases, um, like tracing them back to their exact root. Um, and there are many aspects of the Beast of Gévaudan who, which sort of became folklore canon for werewolves. And there is some sort of argument that it was around before the Beast of Gévaudan and some argument that the Beast of Gévaudan kind of gave birth to many of the aspects, like, for example, the silver bullets, which, uh, you know, have become, if you want to kill a werewolf, you do it with a silver bullet. 
and and the, the, there was some kind of talk that there was that happened before, but there's many theories that say it came from Chastel and the idea that it was he was the first person that introduced that idea to the concept of the werewolf. So that was quite interesting. Um, I did, do I think it was an actual werewolf? Of course, no, definitely not. So then you have the theory of was it perhaps a serial killer? I think that's really interesting, actually. I think it's a really interesting theory. I don't agree with it because too many people described it as a as an animal. But I do think it's interesting. And I do think that, obviously, there were perhaps some bodies which could have been killed by a human and left on the ground and they would have been attributed to the beast. So that's interesting that perhaps a serial killer could have been kind of working again, a bit like supplementing the deaths of a wolf pack to make a, a sort of beast become worse. Because if the killer, say, of the 70-odd deaths, the wolf pack killed like 30 and, and the human killed 30, that, 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 that would be, you know, quite interesting. Do I think it happened? Probably not, because I think someone would have sort of pointed out the differences. I mean, often they were left half-eaten and... I, you know, you'd have to be a pretty gross serial killer or definitely one that would deserve to be part of this show if you were going around killing people in forests, killing children in forests and eating half of their bodies raw. Um, that would certainly be a dark history staple. Um, but I, I don't think that's the case. I, I don't think... Um, I just don't think it was a serial killer. But I do think it's a really interesting take on The Beast of Chevrolet that, you know, it could have been something completely not animal driven at all all told though i think despite all the kind of supernatural abilities that it supposedly had the ability to kind of the only one that we really has any kind of any sort of i hesitate to say evidence but at least it was in the official reports whether there were official reports that it that it was shot and sort of fell and got back up again so that they're the only kind of supernatural um elements that had kind of evidence but i do find like the way that progressed from being you know it started out as a normal animal really and it, it kind of snowballed a lot like what i found with um you know what you find with any sort of folk story of with a contained narrative um the the, the, the kind of the head of that story the the kind of focal point slowly progresses um and evolves into something quite unlike what it started and and almost always a lot worse. And I, and I found it, um, yeah, really fascinating the way it kind of, as time went on, it slowly became friends with an enchantresses and yeah, had the ability to cast spells. And I really enjoyed just the way the story kind of slipped into this kind of bizarre folktale. You know, it starts off as quite a, an, a well-documented, and relatively normal story of animal attacks. And it, it slowly descends into this kind of realm of dream and mystery and, and folklore, but all the time still with vast documentation and, and official reports. So I found that really interesting. And I really like the mood of the story um, and the way, yeah, the way it just kind of dips slowly into this kind of crazy folklore tale that, that ends with Chastel kind of, you know, very much a kind of folk hero 
and, and the way he kills it has been very much, um, yeah, like a, a kind of folktale. Do I think Shastel killed the beast? You know, if there was a beast, so if we hypothetically say there was one singular beast, do I think Shastel killed it? I mean, that's another interesting one. I don't think he did. I think, I think perhaps the locals just wanted a more satisfying conclusion rather than this sort of king's uh, personal guard, uh, personal gunman, and um, members in nobility, essentially. I think they didn't want that. I think they wanted a local, and I think they wanted to conclude the story in a way that suited them. And I think that's what they got out of it being Chastel. And because, you know, how comes the attack suddenly stopped? The one thing that I think goes for Chastel's wolf or Chastel's beast is that they found remains inside its stomach of a human, if they indeed did. Because, like I say, like all of the reports of the Chastel's beast that he killed are kind of lost to time because he apparently killed it and then he took it home paraded it around and then sent it off to Versailles. It, there was a 15-day journey and all the time it was in the summer heat, it apparently putrefied and was disgusting. So they just said, sod that, bury that, but I go, I'm not, you know, it stinks, put it in the ground. And I'm not sure that would have happened unless it was, you know, unless we get into conspiracy again and it was all a cover up by the king. You know, the king said, hang on a minute, there's a guy here that's claiming to be the beast, put that sucker in the ground quick before anyone sees it. Because I've already told, you know, everyone that we've killed it. So perhaps, you know, you could get into conspiracy there. Was it just the fact that none of it really happened and it was all kind of, by this point, the whole story just slips into kind of folk legend almost. It's an interesting one. It's it's really good. I, I've I really enjoyed the story. Um, so yeah, I'm really glad I did it. I say I ended up writing it twice pretty much, um, but I'm glad I did because a lot of the sources that were French were just so much better than the English sources. So yeah, I'm glad I ended up writing it twice. So that's pretty much that. I think I'll leave it there because, I mean, I'm just chucking out where my kind of idea. I mean, my, my, my kind of thoughts as I was writing it, I guess. Um, my, my my main theory is that it was basically a pack of wolves, probably, if it was anything. But fascinating story nonetheless. And we will be talking about it in next week's live stream. So I'll, I'll just toss out my kind of where I am, you know, get off the fence and toss out where I am and invite you guys to come and talk about those theories more next week at the live stream, I guess. At the start of the show, I mentioned that yesterday, today, we'll be coming back. So I had a few uh, questions, uh, emails, social media things. People were asking yesterday, today, if it was going to be making a comeback. It definitely will be making a comeback. Basically, what happened was I had a, a big pre-recorded backlog of yesterday, today, because it being daily, obviously, I needed to sort of record it in advance. But when I was ill, I, I, that kind of evaporated. And um, so now I've been basically working on building up that backlog again. And I'll be relaunching it, basically. Not in the too distant future i would say a matter of weeks rather than months um so it won't it won't be too much longer when i do relaunch it i'm actually going to relaunch it under a separate podcast this time so you will have to subscribe to it separately but when i launch it i'll make sure i, I you know I'll, I'll release a short episode on on the dark history stream that just says you know if you're interested go and subscribe um i'm, I'm only doing that 
purely because it just keeps the two podcast feeds sort of cleaner for the people that perhaps don't want to listen to it because I, I did notice that the stats were a lot higher per episode for my normal episodes than they were for the yesterday today episodes so that's totally cool but obviously for people that don't want to listen to it I didn't want to bombard them every day with episodes that they didn't want basically so I, I will be splitting it into say two separate podcasts and I will sort of um, relaunch that in in the coming weeks, I would say sort of like say say weeks rather than months, and 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 I'll I'll make sure that everyone knows I'll I'll get it out on social media. It's sort of you know it'll be the same as as every as dark histories. It will just be on iTunes and all the rest of it, and you can subscribe to it just the same. But I will I will say make sure that's well known so that you guys can get on it if you want to. And the second thing I sort of mentioned at the start of the show was we've come out to our second anniversary which is really exciting. And I really want to make, if, if anyone's listened to the first anniversary show, I basically did like an awards ceremony. But at the time, the audience wasn't anywhere near as big as it is now. So I just kind of came up with a, bu- a bunch of kind of ridiculous categories and um, just sort of nominated people for myself and then just let them win. Um, but what I'd really like to do is make this year's show much more of a, a kind of community thing and and much more sort of a show that's made by all of us together. So I would really like um, to, basically what's going to happen is uh, in the coming weeks, um, I'm going to ask the patrons to suggest categories. So the, the categories will be sort of um, created and picked, I guess, hopefully by the patrons if they'd like to do that. Um, some of the pa- categories I'm going to be keeping from last year like the biggest bastard and uh things like that but sort of new categories are uh, i'm going to be taking suggestions from the patrons and then nominations and voting is going to be done across all the social media for everybody so that we can all sort of kind of hopefully get involved and vote for who we want to win for each nomination and and yeah then the second episode show will be a kind of like sort of communally made show between all of us and I think that'll be really good fun um so the award ceremony it's it's kind of just a way to express our favorite kind of episodes and little sort of facets of episodes um and it's not really super important but it I I just think it'd be good fun to make um and a way just to kind of make a nice landmark because it's going to be two years of dark histories and you know why not do it all together? Because I think that would be a lot more fun. So hopefully you'll all get involved um, with that one. So again, that will all be coming out on social media. Uh, and if you would like to follow any of our social media, support the podcast, anything like that, go to darkhistories.com and you can find everything there. You can also contact me there via email um, or you can just send me an email at contact at darkhistories.com. But yeah, if you go to darkhistories.com, you'll basically find everything you need um, for everything there. It's a central hub, basically. It's got, you know, um, all of our links to all of our social media. um, So Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all all the kind of links to how to support the show and why, you know, that's important. um, And also, you know, what what you get out of it. Um, So, you know, but basically darkhistory.com, go there for everything 
if you do just want to take a punt, we're pretty much Dark Histories on every single social media. But say so there are links to that on darkhistories.com. So yeah, thanks very much for listening. Thoroughly enjoyed on my part and I hope you all enjoyed it too. Next week, say there'll be the live stream if you want to get involved. Absolutely. Look forward to seeing you there. If you don't, I'll see you in a couple of weeks with the next episode. So thanks very much. Take care and have a great couple of weeks. Sleep tight.